is this recording? Just kidding. I know this is recording because right now I'm sitting in front of a microphone plugged into a computer. But for a few times each day during the first half of March, I spent a lot of time digging my phone out from a lot of layers, protecting it with one hand, and hitting the red button on the Voice Memos app. After I listened back to all of that audio, it seemed that the most common thing I said to start off was, is this recording? The reason it was so hard to tell is that I was in the middle of running my first Iditarod. My fingers were freezing, the temperatures got down to the negative 50s, and it is pretty hard to negotiate seven plus layers with or without gloves. So I think it makes sense that it's pretty much the first thing out of my mouth every time. Over the 10 days of the 2021 Iditarod sled dog race, I made 17 recordings. Some are almost two hours long, some are just a few minutes. I recorded my thoughts and my plans, I recorded silly conversations between me and the dogs, I recounted stories that had just happened, I took audio of myself going through some of the infamous obstacles of the race, I recorded myself falling asleep and talking utter nonsense for miles, and my plan is to share that experience with you. But maybe we should back up a minute before we go onward. If you're listening to this, most likely you know what mushing is. You know who I am, you know what the Iditarod is. But just in case someone wanders this way who doesn't know much about mushing or about my team, Ateo Kennel, I thought I'd record a primer episode, so to speak. If you are already an Ateo buddy or you've been following mushing for years, this one might be kind of old hat. You might be more into skipping it and moving straight to the start of the race. Totally do it. But if you have no idea who I am, what Ateo stands for, what mushing actually is, or why someone would be wild enough to travel 800 miles with a pack of dogs, this one's for you. And, I mean, if you might enjoy hearing someone go on and on about mushing, you're in the right place. My name is Will Trushinsky. I am a trans guy who mushes sled dogs. I can't really talk about myself without talking about mushing, so let's start there. In super basic terms, sled dog mushing is a group of dogs pulling a sled, usually with a human riding on the sled in some fashion. Mushing isn't just restricted to sleds. Dog mushing, of any sort, is the ambitious idea of connecting usually between 2 to 16 dogs to some sort of transport, and then, amazingly, letting them pull you. People do this with all sorts of things. Wagons, go-karts, skateboards, scooters cars with or without engines inside. For some reason, the idea of letting your rowdy and excited canine best buddies drag you along the ground touches off something that is just deep inside of us. That desire has certainly sparked some ill-advised adventures, and it's also created some magic. Part of the magic, the part that I know the best, is sled dog mushing. Modern dog sleds are a fairly lightweight construction. They have two runners that slide over the snow or ice, Um, basically like skis. There's a basket that your gear goes into, and then there's a place for you to stand and a place for you to hold on to. And you really want to hold on. The thing about mushing of any kind is that you better be prepared for a ride. If you know dogs, you know that they love to run. I mean, yes, we all know some canine couch potatoes, but most dogs from the littlest chihuahua to the biggest mastiff love to run. Whether it's chasing someone or feeling the wind in their fur, running and dogs are a thing. When a sled dog and a harness come together, it is something beautiful. 
think of your dog getting excited for her walk and then amp it up by like a thousand. And instead of asking your dog to stay like nicely by your heel, imagine letting them go, hitting the end of the leash, and then with the power of a bunch of their friends, being able to move the pack together. She's in her element. She's going further, faster, and evermore towards the next thing to sniff and see and experience. When a group of dogs comes together to run, there's an energy to it that is, it's spiritual. There's a connection to it. The human hanging onto the sled gets the privilege of being the water boy to nature's most amazing team. Are there dogs who don't want to run? <laughs> of course there are. Dogs, like humans, are individuals, and they all have different personalities. Huskies tend to really want to run, to understate it. But every now and then, you'll meet a husky who plainly and clearly says, no thank you, I am good. So what happens to that dog? Well, they make themselves a super comfy spot on the couch. Huskies who aren't into running most typically become a house pet. They either become the pet of a musher, I know several in our neighborhood, or they are able to become pets in a house anywhere around the world. Some of those huskies might prefer fetch, or they might just not like running in a group, and so they'd be really good for like ski jor, which is when one husky pulls you by your skis, and notice I'm saying your because I am not good at skiing. Sled dogs, though, are sled dogs because 99.9% .9 of them are all in for running. It's what they think about day and night. When they dream, they have running dreams. If you give them a choice of activities, they pick running, and that is over anything else, eating, sleeping, whatever, they would prefer to run. Pull out a harness and a sled dog goes wild. A walk around the block is not enough for these dogs. And when you get a group of these dogs together and they realize that they have the power to pull a thing, they don't really care if you are attached or not. They will pull it. They will run. Uh, they will keep running. It's a thing. That's why the number one rule in mushing is don't let go of the sled. If you do let go of the sled, say goodbye, because the team's going to keep going until someone comes along to catch a sled and put the brake or the anchor in. It's like their genes switch on to this age-old practice. They just want more trail, more running. It's the same feeling as when they howl together. It's tuning in to this ancient part of themselves. And it makes sense because dog mushing has been around for a really long time. Some anthropologists argue that mushing may have been around for as long as domesticated dogs and Arctic living have coincided, which also makes perfect sense. The practice of sled dog mushing was originated by native communities in the Arctic around the world. For thousands of years, it was the prime mode of transport in those areas during the wintertime. When settlers colonized the Arctic regions, they also colonized the practice of mushing. And that's its whole own subject. And there's a lot of work to pay back the debt of appropriated knowledge not just systemically, but for myself personally. I live and mush dogs primarily on Tanana Diné land, and I'm working to learn more about the roots of the sport that I am part of colonizing. French colonizers on Inuit, Nunavut, Cree, and other native people's lands were supposedly the first white settlers to learn to mush in North America. And the word mush comes from the French word marché, which I'm definitely not saying right, but means something like walk or go. Mushing persisted throughout the Arctic regions as long as there was winter and not machines. During the gold rush, miners were so eager to have their dogs pull their gear that they infamously stole pet dogs right out of people's yards. And that's the genesis for Call of the Wild, if you haven't read it. Uh, don't see it. It looks 
really bad. Sorry, Harrison Ford. So not good. Uh, supposedly, the mixing of all the different breeds of these stolen dogs with the northern breeds, like the Siberian Huskies or Inuit Huskies, ultimately created a dog called the Alaskan Husky. So there are different kinds of sled dogs. What you imagine when you first think of sled dogs and what you see in a lot of media, it's probably a fluffy black and white dog with big blue eyes. That's usually a Siberian Husky or a Malamute. Siberian Huskies and Malamutes are older breeds of sled dogs. Neither of them are as common anymore. Siberians do run in races, but the most common sled dog these days in both sprint racing and distance racing is the Alaskan Husky. We call them purebred Alaskan mutts because they're a mix. Alaskan Huskies have a lot of different things within their breeds. Basically, whatever wants to run more. They have a lot of the northern breeds, uh, Siberian, Samoyed, Inuit Huskies, even a little wolf. Uh, they also have Greyhound, German Shorthair Pointer, even Shiba Inu, and a lot of other really strange things. I can't remember it all. There was a breakdown of what their genetics were supposed to be recently, and it's, it's pretty wild. The Alaskan Husky is a recognized breed now on its own, but it is, it's unusual. If you look at two Alaskan Huskies sitting next to each other, you might laugh at the idea that they're the same breed. They could look wildly different from each other because they're not bred for looks at all. They're bred for performance. So it's the markers of performance that are actually genetically close enough to denote their specific breed. So you could have a dog who has super short hair and floppy ears next to a dog with long, luxurious fur and pointy ears, and both of them are Alaskan Huskies, but they look amazingly different. And the thing that makes them so similar is that they both can complete something like a thousand mile race and do it in fun form. There were recent studies that came out that showed that two different Alaskan Huskies like that, who look so different, they can share as much or more genetic similarity to each other as two different beagles, say, who are clearly and distinctly both beagles. So genes are wild, and sled dogs are wilder. The sled dogs in my kennel are all Alaskan Huskies. Alaskans are my favorite dog for a lot of reasons, but one of the big ones is how cheerful and friendly they are. I'll tell you a lot more about my Ateo teammates later and through the course of all of these recordings. But with the idea of the Alaskan Husky in mind, let's go back just a little bit more and talk about where mushing as a sport came from. Up until the mid-1900s, people in Alaska, both the native communities and the white settlers, used sled dogs to transport mail, cargo, and themselves all over. Famously, there was a relay from Fairbanks to Nome by a series of mushers handing off a diphtheria serum, which saved many of the children in Nome during an outbreak in 1925. There's a lot of stories from Matt Balto, hopefully maybe you've heard of Togo now, and a lot of the legends from that time. But pretty soon after this, something else made its appearance on the Arctic scene, the Iron Dog, or as you may know it, the Snowmobile, what we call in Alaska, the Snow Machine. I'm going to refer to them as snow machines from here on out, so if I'm saying that, know that I mean snowmobile, if that's what you're more familiar with. Snow machines started to take over as the primary method of transportation in the Arctic, and mushing started to disappear. So the story goes that Joe Reddington Sr. saw this happening and wanted to do something that would bring sled dogs back to the fore, to not let mushing fade away into memory, and to not let the dogs fade away either. He recognized as a musher that there's this spark, that spirituality I talked about, and that that was worth preserving. So Joe put together this frankly ridiculous idea. 
an epic race, a thousand mile race that would go from Anchorage to Nome, crossing the Alaska Range, the Yukon River, and the brutal western coastline of Alaska. When the first teams ran this race in 1973, they had no idea if they would even make it. It took weeks for the teams to make their way to Nome. They didn't have food supplies the way we do now. They didn't have trail markers. They really didn't have any of the types of technology used in mushing today. They sort of had headlamps. Some of the folks who ran that first Iditarod are actually still around, and you can ask them about the experience if you want, which is pretty amazing. There are a lot of laughs and a lot of harrowing tales. It's a wild story. Now it's almost 50 years later, and the Iditarod has been running every year since. It normally runs from Willow to Nome now. Willow is a town that's a bit further north and a little less populated than Anchorage, so it's a little easier to take off from. But typically, they do a ceremonial start in Anchorage every year, which you'll hear me talking about in the episodes coming up, because sadly, this year, with a pandemic in full swing, the ceremonial start was canceled, and the race altered course and did something totally new. It ran from Willow to the halfway point, and then it turned around and ran back. A big part of the reason for doing this was to avoid some of the native communities along the route who have been isolating and trying to preserve their communities from the pandemic. It would be terrible if mushing brought that into their communities. And so that change was made in the interest of that. Incidentally, this was my first Iditarod, and it was definitely memorable. And it should have been, because it took me 20 years to get to the starting line. I grew up in Alaska, and I wanted to mush sled dogs since I could understand what mushing was. I was lucky enough to get to learn to mush with Martin Boozer, who is a four-time Iditarod champion. I went on to work with various mushers around the state of Alaska as a handler, which is kind of like a mushing apprentice. I met a lot of dogs, I ran a lot of mid-distance races, so that's, that's what we call usually a 300-mile race, is a mid-distance race, and I scooped a lot of poop. Along the way, I learned about how to raise dogs, how to foster a positive pack, and how I'd want to structure my own sled dog team. I went to college in St. Paul, Minnesota. I met some of my best friends in the world there and ended up living in Minnesota for a total of about 10 years, all told. But I couldn't stifle the desire to return to Alaska and to mushing. Some winters, I did come back to Alaska and mush, working as a handler, like I said. I went back and forth between Alaska and Minnesota, never really fully ready to commit to my deepest hope, which I was also terrified of. It was to start my own kennel and raise and train my own pack of dogs. I didn't want to run Iditarod until I could do it with my pack because I couldn't bear the idea of having such an amazing adventure and such a connective adventure and then having to say goodbye to the dogs at the end of it as I, a handler, would move on to a different place. In 2017, my spouse Sean, who uses they-them pronouns, and I moved up from Minneapolis to Fairbanks, Alaska, which has a great mushing community and a lot more consistent cold weather than further south in Alaska, which is where I grew up. I took the plunge and started my kennel, or in other words, my team, with a group of puppies from my mentor Martin, as well as two old lady dogs, Bonnie and Hooch, and a few dogs who had run just a little, Egret, Annie, Nala, and Ophelia. I formed a game plan that I would run Iditarod within the next five years. My plan was to grow and learn with my pups. We'd work together, race together, and become a team, a pack. In 2021, we would finally run Iditarod. I didn't think I could put together the funding, much less pull off the feats of organization, training, and time that preparing for a thousand mile race requires. But I swallowed my terror and I just kept going. 
the motto of our kennel became Onward. In fact, ATEO, which is spelled A-T-A-O, stands for our philosophy on whole, adventure, truth, accountability, onward. We do our best to uphold that every day, and it's, it's not easy. I can't say that we're 100% great at it. We try. The dogs in the Ateo pack are goofy, strange, shy, sweet, they are grumpy, they are individuals. And to me, they're my family and my best friends. Ateo is made up of 24 sled dogs and 3 pet dogs. The sled dogs are Alaskan Huskies. They are Bonnie, Hooch, Annie, Nala, Cassidy, Aurora, Belle, Emmy, Ophelia, Furiosa, Sundance, Marnie, Mungry, Max, Zenny, Lincoln, Rogue, Ray, Rebel, Egret, Astro, Cowboy, He-Man, and Pop-Tart. The pet dogs are Huckleberry, who is my naughty herding mix, and Oliver and Moe, who are Sean's dogs. Oliver is a herding dog too, but he's slightly less naughty than Huck. Moe is a 190-pound mastiff. I could spend hours telling you about every single dog, but for now, if you want to learn more about any of them, you can visit ateokennel.com and check out our team page and learn more about the dogs. Of the 24 dogs I listed there, only 16 were in the race pool for this season. Bonnie and Hooch are each 13 years old and they're happily retired. They rule the roost and they have their choice of dog beds in the house. And they also like to wander around barking at everybody else. Egret just retired this season. She actually trained with the team, but she started showing at the end of the season that she wasn't as interested in going on the longer runs. And if a dog doesn't want to run, they don't run. Mushing's not about making anybody run. Egret now practices being on the couch, but she still spends a lot of her time doing wild zoomies around the yard and running with the younger dogs. She also enjoys testing out everybody else's doghouse, just to make sure that it's not better than hers. The younger dogs are Astro, Cowboy, He-Man, and Pop-Tart. They are all less than a year old, so they're too young to be on the Iditarod team. So they spend a lot of time playing with each other and being told what is what by the old ladies. Max is the other dog who's not in the racing pool. He loves to run, but he tends to overheat once the run gets up to a certain mileage. Instead of long distance running, he's a great helper to the pups. He facilitates their playtime. He's actually maybe one of the most playful, so maybe they facilitate him. And he also teaches them the proper way to be a sled dog. So, we have 16 dogs left out of that group. I had to choose 14, which is the official starting number of dogs in an Iditarod team. So I had to select who wouldn't go with me. It was a tough decision. Here's some audio from my last run, my last training run, before Iditarod. Luckily, most of the audio from the race itself is way better quality, but this should give you an example of what kind of rambling you're in for if you choose to come along on this aural adventure with us. Part of the run is making the final choice about who the 14 will be, so two dogs have to stay home. I think I finally have decided that it's probably going to be Mungry and Link who stay home, my two yearlings. Yeah, talking about you, huh? That's good dogs. Um, so yearlings, as you might suspect, it's the dogs who are a year old and um, they can definitely run um, big race like the Iditarod, but you typically want to do it at a, at a really nice, slow, easy pace um, so you don't add a lot of strain on them. 
since they are young still. Um, and uh, so these two dogs are definitely, um, yeah, they're impressive. They both have completed two 300 mile races this year. They both did excellently. Um, their brother, um, hey. their brother Maverick from all reports is also really impressive. So I definitely think they have what it takes, but with everybody looking really great, I think that the best choice is going to be to let those two uh, be done with their season and get to just play and hang out with their half siblings who are about eight months old. Uh, Mungry and Link are about a year and a half. Um, so I think that is, I think they're going to stay at home, which is sad. I, I've really bonded to them. They're the first dogs I ever personally, like, well, I caught them. Um, and they came out and it's, uh, basically I've been with them their whole life. Kind of, kind of wild. As you can hear, I ultimately decided to leave Mungry and Link at home. They are each only one year old. Since all of the dogs were in great health, it was most logical to leave them behind for this race. They will definitely be with me next year. There were a lot of other factors going into the race. The night before the race, I was furiously packing, sewing, and doing otherwise really random last minute things to try to be ready for the starting time. I'd already been in high stress mode for a long time because I was trying desperately to finish building my sled before the start, which is not advisable. My normal sled was wearing down and I knew that I had to build something or buy something to get me safely down the trail. I wanted to build it because that's been part of my dream for a long time. <laughs> Even though I'd never done it before, I decided that was the route I was going to go. Unfortunately for poor Sean, the living room turned into a disaster zone because I don't have a shop or anything like that. So while I was preparing for Iditarod, there was all kinds of things that ended up strewn about the living room. First, we gathered and prepared the supplies that had to be mailed out to each of the checkpoints or stops along the way. Checkpoints are manned by race volunteers and often provide everything from food to shelter for humans. And they also hold your drop bags. So that's the plastic, like, kind of poly bags that you mail out ahead of time. They're full of dog food, meat, blankets, snacks, and anything else that you're going to need along the route. We send about 1,500 pounds out. Organizing and preparing the drop bags is a huge hurdle. The moment we finished that hurdle, I started building my sled. And the reason it was so late that I started building my sled was that it was super difficult to get supplies for the sled mailed up from the lower 48. We get it from a small company who manufactures them down in the Midwest, and they were awesome to work with. But with the pandemic, it was really difficult to get all of that stuff up. I finally got the supplies I needed, and as soon as there was a tiny bit of room spared from the drop bag project, I dove in with my sled. Over the course of 12 days, I didn't really have time to panic about how soon I did a rod was. I had to finish the sled, damn it. I knew that part of that was a way to distract myself from worrying, but it still worked, even though I knew at the time, oh, I'm distracting myself. By the time the start rolled around, not only was my sled built and tested, but I was strangely calm. I stayed calm, not really being able to register that this was the Iditarod, that after 20 years of work and waffling, I was doing it. In fact, I have finished the race. Sorry, it's a spoiler. 
uh, but it still hasn't hit me that I have done it. Maybe I will register that a bit more after I listen back to the complete tapes here. I'm going to be releasing one of these episodes a week. Most of the time I recorded one recording per run. I skipped a couple runs, and there are a couple runs I recorded more than once on. I hope you're going to have fun going with me down the trail. I'm not sure if this is going to be listenable or not. I really hope it is. But thanks for taking the time to listen to this so far. I can't wait to share our journey with you and how we overcame the obstacles of the Iditarod, both external and internal. As we like to say at Ateo, onward. Oh, hey, you're still here. Hi. So, I recorded some audio on the very last run before the Iditarod. You heard some of it just earlier. On the run, I talk about my choice of which dogs to bring on the race, that's the part you heard before, more about how I got into mushing, and thoughts about what the race is going to be like. Unfortunately, as you also probably heard, the audio for that recording was not very great. I spent most of that run crinkling cloth against the mic. I think I was testing out a new parka. Anyway, I worked with a sound editor to clean it up, but ultimately, I still just wasn't that thrilled with how it ended up. Nevertheless, it does exist. So, should you want to listen to it, keep going in this episode. If you don't want to listen to Crinkly Rambling, please fast forward through all of this or just skip to the next episode, the first one on the trail. If you're interested in enduring such abrasive sounds, here's the full audio of that recording. I promise the ones on the race are way better. Okay, this time for real. Onward. All right. Oh, I guess I'm recording. So... So this is the last run before the Iditarod. I've got 16 of our dogs here. Gee, gee. I guess I should introduce myself, huh? Um, my name is Will. I am going to be a rookie in this year's Iditarod. These guys have all been training really hard and they're ready for the race this year. Um, I've been working towards Iditarod, oh man, literally since I was seven years old when my family moved up to Alaska. I told the, um, I told our principal that, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mush sled dogs. You come babysit me and watch me mush sled dogs. I didn't realize at the time that it's actually like not everybody in Alaska mushes. In fact, most people have not, never even been on a dog sled. Um, it's not just you move up to Alaska and voila, there you go. You have to really, yeah, you kind of have to find your way in. And um, I was lucky in that my mom is a teacher and she ended up teaching with the wife of a famous sled dog musher, Martin Boozer, who is uh, at this time, before I did a rod, a four-time I did a rod champ. Uh, who knows? Maybe this year will be number five. And... Um, yeah, I ended up getting, well, we became pretty close with their family, and um, Martin took me under his wing. I asked him if he would train me to run the junior Iditarod, and he he did when I was a freshman in high school. Um, I got to work at his kennel. Half of the week I lived at the kennel, half the week I lived at home, so I was mushing dogs and doing my homework and trying to navigate the world of being a kid in high school. and. Um, but mostly what I cared about was mushing dogs, and 
I ran my first junior Iditarod. It'll be exactly 20 years ago. Well, I guess actually it's, it's been exactly 20 years ago this past weekend. Um, the junior Iditarod goes the weekend before the Iditarod, so wild. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, yeah, so and ever since then, I've been just hooked. I've been planning to run the Iditarod. I mean, basically, since I got to step on the runners of a sled. And, uh, you know, I hoped it would happen a lot sooner. I, um, I really wanted to must when I got done with high school. I mean, I wanted to run a Jitterod, but my parents really wanted me to go to college. And so I took a little four-year break and went to um, college in St. Paul, Minnesota. Good dad. And... Uh, across the road that was that noise um yeah so i went to school in st paul and i studied um i studied theater in english which is really lucrative um as you might guess and uh yeah then i returned to alaska um and handled for a couple different people over all over the state um and I got to learn a bunch of different styles of mushing, which was really cool. Um, and that whole time I was kind of debating about if I wanted to start my own sled dog kennel. So, you know, have my own group of dogs that I would be caring for. Having a sled dog kennel means that you are, you are kind of a bunch of different things at once. You're a parent to the dogs, just like people with pet dogs, you know, you're taking care of them. But you're also the coach and you're the team, you know, uh, physical therapist and, uh, you know, first responder for any kind of sorenesses or injuries or illnesses and, um, you know, you're the person who's with them 24-7, 365. Uh, Sled dog mushing is not a sport in the normal vein of sport where you have a season and then you kind of, you know, go away. it's, it's much more of a lifestyle, um, and these dogs are my family, so, you know, these guys are my best friends, um, like, legitimately, uh, they are the faces I dream about, and they are the, the creatures who are most familiar to me, they're my people, and, uh, yeah, I'm really excited and also kind of terrified to be taking a little uh, dog walk with them across Alaska pretty soon. So my brain is definitely not comprehending that we're going to be on the ride shortly. It's not really uh, processing that at all. Um, yeah. I don't know when it will start processing that. I'm nervous. It's going to be a different Iditarod because of the pandemic this year or this past year. Um, there's been some significant changes to the race. They, the race normally goes from uh, like Willow, Alaska to Nome, Alaska, which crosses the Alaska Range. It crosses the interior of Alaska, and then it ends up on the coast of Alaska. So you, you kind of hit all these different environments. But um, this year, it's going to go to the checkpoint of Iditarod, which is in, in Syria, Alaska. So we'll go over the mountains, 
go to the checkpoint of Iditarod and then turn around um, and come back to Willow, back over the mountains again. And uh, part of the reasoning for that, I believe, is so that we are limiting the exposure to the various villages that are normally part of the lake route. Um, we will still be going um, not through villages, but near some of the villages that are typically checkpoints. Um, that's been a sort of tricky thing to navigate to make sure that, you know, just wanting to know that the communities, the Alaska Native villages, have been, um, had a good amount of input in whether or not they want the race to come by or not, and, um, and then working with them to ensure that we don't expose them to the pandemic. Um, and I did around doing a lot of things to try to maintain a quote-unquote bubble, and it's either going to work or it's like not going to work. And I think by the end of this, we'll, we'll know. I really hope that it does work. You know, I, I hope that everybody is kind of stick to the protocols and the rules. Um, you know, we are, we've been, we have been asked to test. You guys want to take a little break? Ooh, it's a beautiful day out. The dogs are dunking themselves in some snow here. And uh, eating snow. That's one of the ways they cool down. But in a second, you're going to hear my driven start barking because they don't want to rest for too long. Uh, my leader, Belle, is rolling around. She loves to roll in the snow. <laughs> one of her favorite things. Kind of looks like a tiny pony rolling in the snow. She's not very pony shaped, though. She's more shaped like a sausage. A fast sausage. But you can hear them start to make some noise. They want to get going. Are you guys ready? Oh, okay, Mungry. Sorry, buddy. You guys ready? All right. Mungry is just going to have a roll, but... He said he would jump back up. Yeah, so we've got COVID protocols. We've been, we have tested, we've been required to take tests ourselves. And now, starting yesterday, we were tested by Iditarod. We will be tested again the day of the start, which is on Sunday. Today is Friday. And then we will be tested in the middle of the race. And at any point, if we get a positive test, um, we'll be retested to make sure that there's not a false positive. And then if, there, if it's a true positive, then we are um, withdrawn from the race and we're required to quarantine. Um, and then if we need to be, we will we'll move to like medical care. Um, I hope that the plans in place are going to be sufficient to protect um, everyone along the trail, and of course, you know, the people in the room, but, uh, most of all, I definitely want to make sure that the communities along the trail are, um, not just safe, but also sort of like, um, active participants in the plan. Um, I actually reached out to a couple different contacts in the, uh, villages along the way and was able to talk to a few people, including a health um, worker in 
in the village of um, Nikolai, and um, uh, she's just, just really kind and positive person. She was really excited for the race to come through still, and what she said was that the community was um, actually mostly sad that they couldn't visit with the people. I think Iditarod coming through, um, in some cases, uh, seems to be like a really exciting event for people along the route. Um, I don't think that that is a universal experience for all of the communities. Um, you know, after all, this is definitely, this sport is, um, yeah, it has definitely appropriated a way of life that was originated here by the first people. And, um, you know, the race takes place largely on um, uh, Canada land and other Alaska Native land. Uh, I mean, naturally, all of this is their land. So, um, yeah, I think that there can be some frustration with, with that. Um, I'm hoping to, you know, do more work to try to, uh, both like pay respect to the tradition of this sport and to the people who originated it. Um, the indigenous folks, not just here, but across, um, Russia and in Northern Europe as well, um, Scandinavia. Um, yeah, I mean, I have educating to do for myself and um, a lot of work to do myself to try to uh, better the sport in relationship to that and also, um, you know, hopefully not just detract from the communities along the way, but um, give back as I can. Um, yeah. So, aside from Mungri and Link, we have uh, a group of mostly three to five-year-olds. Um, the three-year-olds uh, are kind of the main core of the team. They are uh, dogs who I raised from puppies. I didn't have them. I didn't um, whelp them, so the, they were not born at our kennel. Oh, see, I was like on the way to do my introductions and I got derailed. But that's an important thing to know about me. Uh, so I was diagnosed with ADHD pretty recently. And um, I've also struggled with mental health issues uh, basically since I was a teen, um, maybe even longer, but um, particularly uh, depression has been a real big factor in my life. And um, one of my goals, one of my missions is to um, try to spread some awareness about that. And, um, you know, especially for young people. So, uh, you know, that's something I'm constantly kind of working on and seeing what I can do to um, work with local organizations and, um, again, spread awareness and maybe, like, maybe potentially do some good. Um, another thing about me, um, I don't even remember, yeah, oh yeah, I did mention my name. Wow, this is going to be exciting. But, um, yeah, another thing about me is I'm actually a trans person, I'm a trans guy, I use he, him pronouns, 
I started my medical and social transition uh, just about two years ago. It's going to be two years ago in April. Um, I didn't originally plan to do this. Like, I had definitely thought about it for a long time, but I had kind of intended to hold back on doing that um, until I could kind of do it more privately. I mean, you know, being a macho, you're not like famous or anything, but you, you know, there's some exposure. Um, you kind of have a little bit of a social media following and whatnot. And honestly, my social media following um, that, uh, especially on Twitter, but in, in all, we have, you know, uh, Facebook and other areas. Um, we have a Patreon and we have a lot of support from that. We call them our buddies. Um, yeah, I mean, those folks, uh, not only have they made it possible for me to run Iditarod, but they, um, you know, they showed me a side of mushroom spectatorship that I just didn't think existed, uh, which was kind of a little bit more, um, well, just open-minded towards uh, queer folks, particularly, and um, being able to be accepted just as a queer person was huge. And then, um, you know, I did finally feel comfortable to come out as a trans person and begin my medical transition, which has been huge. Um, I finally feel like I am just neat. Like, it's like you've been wearing an ill-fitting outfit for your whole life, and then all of a sudden somebody gives you something that fits, and it's like the biggest relief. Um, so I am really grateful that I've been able to do that. Hey. Me. But um yeah, not so much and thanks to uh the folks who who follow us, who follow our kennel. So uh which by the way, our kennel is called a tail kennel. Um so that's A T A O A S. The reason that it's called a tail is uh, it's, uh, it kind of stands for our motto, which is adventure, truth, accountability, onward. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll put like a uh, intro tag at the beginning of this so that it's a little bit more logical. But um, yeah, the folks who follow Ateo have made it possible not just for me to run Iditarod, but for me to do it as myself. And that's, that's pretty massive. Um, so, um, so yeah, the other dogs who are here with us on the team, um, our tail followers know them well. Like I said, the three-year-olds have been with us since they were puppies, and, um, Zenny, <laughs> uh, except for Zenny. Zenny we got when she was two, and, um, what, so she's been with us now for a year, um, She's definitely fitting in part of the pack. But the uh, the other three-year-olds who have been with us since they're puppies, um, so we have a couple different litters. And litters, you usually name a litter in a theme so that you can kind of tell who are siblings with each other. So we have the Star Wars litter, which includes Rogue, who you heard me uh, talking to a minute ago, Rogue, Ray, and Rebel. Uh, they have a theme within a theme, which is like the letter R. That was a, a Sean idea. Sean is my spouse. Um, and they came up with a, that was a good theme. Um, 
And then we have uh, sisters Sundance and Cassidy. Uh, they came as a duo. Um, and then we have Furiosa, who came with her brother Mad Max, but um, Max is not going to be doing distance racing. He loves to run, and he helps us with short races or short runs, but he just uh, isn't isn't kind of cut out for the longer. Just like he gets really hot, and um, that that affects him when he goes um, kind of above a certain mileage. So he's helping us train our younger dogs. And, um, he's a great, he's a great goofy boy. Um, and uh, so those are the three-year-olds. And Zenny, who I mentioned, is kind of her own, um, her own critter. She doesn't have any siblings at the kennel. Um, so my four-year-olds are uh, uh, Ophelia, who is, was the very first puppy who I got. Um, and so I've had her the longest, except for her mom, Hooch. Hooch is a kennel matriarch, but Hooch is, is pretty old now. She's 13. So she's, um, she doesn't uh, run in long distances anymore. She still loves to run, and she loves to chase all the other dogs around. She's got some grandkids at the kennel, and um, she chases them around and chews them out. And, Otherwise, she spends a lot of time on the couch or carrying around dog toys, uh, trying to find places to bury them. Um, those are some of her favorite things. So, um, Ophelia is her daughter, and uh, Ophelia is a great dog. Um, she has been the mother to two litters, so she's Mungry and Link's mom. And, um, yeah, she's just an awesome dog. I really... She's a... Uh, She's my special girl, but uh, she is kind of a funny character because we work really hard to make sure all of our dogs are really well socialized, and we do something called free playing, which is kind of like when you have dogs off leash at the dog park or whatever, but we have our own dog park. We are our own dog park. They just run around and play with each other, but there's a couple who don't get to do that um, as much, or at least not in big groups. Um, Ophelia uh, gets to play fetch by herself, or maybe play with um, a select couple dogs, but she actually really does not like dogs. I think she's not a dog person. Um, so, yeah, it, she's funny that way. She's great at working with do other dogs, but um, she's just not a fan of hanging out with them. So she prefers not to. She does love being on the couch or the bed and uh, snuggling. She's, she's a big fan of humans. Loves people, but not such a big fan of dogs. Um, one of our other four-year-olds is Nala. Um, Nala came from uh, ken the kennel of a friend, um, and she is real goofy. She uh, is the only sled dog who I've ever met who is um, who is really good at fetch. Uh, she loves fetch. I mentioned that Ophelia plays fetch, and she does, but she's like, yeah, okay at it. She's, sometimes you just prefer to run around with the ball. Nala is on point with fetch. She goes and gets the ball, she brings it back to your end, and it's like her favorite thing in the world. Except for running, because, um, yeah, all of these dogs just want to run. They go bananas for it. So, um, yeah, uh, Nala and Ophelia are both really good leaders. Um, and 
Yeah, interesting characters. So, did I miss any of our four-year-olds? I don't think so. I think all the rest of our group here are five. So, we have some experienced five-year-olds, which is great to have on the team. So, um, I'll start with the sisters, Aurora and Belle. And Aurora and Belle came from Martin Boozer, the, my mentor, the person who I learned how to mush from. Um, they actually came as a wedding present. Rogate. Rogue. Sometimes Rogue, if she doesn't think we're going fast enough, likes to uh, yell at her running partner as though it is that dog's fault, which it is not. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, Aurora and Belle came from Martin Boozer. They are um, great leaders. Um, and, uh, yeah, they were a wedding present when Sean and I got married in... Uh, 2019? Oh, I don't remember. I'm going to get in trouble for not remembering that. But, um, yeah, they're really fantastic leaders. Belle is leading right now. She's super smart. Um, we were thinking about maybe having her be a mama. Um, this year. that would be pretty cool. And, um, yeah, her sister Aurora is also awesome. Um, Aurora is stayed. It's really important to us that we stay and neuter uh, the majority of our dogs. Part of our kennel mission, excuse me, Rogi, part of our kennel mission is to keep a small kennel um, because, um, well, first of all, uh, it's, it's a way that we can give each dog the most dedicated attention um, and investment. Uh, we think that, you know, you can really kind of, the, the dogs can flourish and will uh, show you some pretty amazing capabilities with investment. So it's part of what we believe. So um, that is uh, a big part of why we have a small kennel. Um, and also because we're, you know, a small operation. We, uh, myself, is, uh, I'm the main musher. Um, we do have a handler this year named Finn. Samantha, she's awesome. Um, but that's, you know, not a very big operation. And um, I work full-time. It's, it's one thing if you uh, are doing dog mushing. Um, I mean, as I said, it's a 365-day-a-year thing, but um, it is also expensive, and you have to feed the dog somehow. If you are a quote-unquote professional musher, then um, maybe somehow you're making money from, you know, either uh, you're a winner and you have some sponsorships or you are involved in um, tourism that also involves the dogs or, you know, some other way where the dogs are bringing in uh, funds. Um, but I am just, you know, I do my job, which I'm able to work from home. I've, I've been working remotely since before it was cool. Um, and uh, so that allows me to be around the dogs and take care of them and do all the things and free play in the summer and, and do all that kind of fun stuff, but also make some money so that we can pay for um, But, um, yeah, so, uh, so our small kennel has a lot of spayed and neutered, neutered dogs. That's important. We only keep a very select few intact. Um, who we may breed, um, and we are not, like, breeding, you know, a lot of litter. So far, we've got two litters, and 
we may have one more this year. Um, we'll see about one after that, but you know, we're again limiting um, the number of dogs that we are going to uh, be looking after because uh, we believe that every dog deserves as much as we can give them. Um, so uh, Aurora is, and um, yeah, Belle, her sister, is not. And as I said, we may. We may be interested in having her be a mama this year. Um, so some of our other uh, five-year-olds include Annie. Annie came to us from um, a kennel that I had previously worked at. And um, she came to us at, not necessarily as a leader, but um, she was really shy. And we put a lot of time and work in with her, and um, I really bonded to her. Um, she is my buddy for sure. During the free play, she'll just usually follow me around. And um, uh, yeah, she is a fantastic leader. Uh, she is probably one of my core leaders. Um, and yeah, she is. She's a dog I really want to. Um, to get us down the trail. She just never wants to stop. She's got this very forward-oriented drive, and it's pretty cool. Um, she's also a real sweetheart, and she loves to go in the house. Um, she's pretty funny, though, because all, most of the dogs, like, immediately go to the couch. They love the couch. That's, like, the place. But Annie is, like, not about the couch life. Um, I've been working with her to try to get her comfortable to even like go on the couch, but she's not really having it. So that's going to definitely be a spring and summer project to get back to that and see if we can get her to the point where she'll be cool with the couch. You know, she's okay with the bed, but for some reason the couch is like not her thing. So anyway, that's a spring project for sure. And um, another five-year-old we have uh, is the awesome Marnie. Marnie is... Um, Marnie comes from a kennel of a friend, another friend. She's actually related to Ophelia, their cousin. Um, and she is, uh, she doesn't, hasn't led for me yet, but I think she does have that potential. I haven't put her up front yet. Um, and, you know, we may, we may give that a shot, even during this race. Sometimes that, it's a good environment to try that. But, um, She's uh, just a rock of a team dog. She is, um, she is steady and strong, and she also is really good at getting the team amped up, and that's, that's a really good benefit. Um, and then finally, we have, I think finally, did I get through everybody? Yeah, I think I did. Uh, finally, we have Emmy. So Emmy came to us um, as a four-year-old, um, and as a fantastic leader, she has, is the only dog who has run Iditarod. She's run um, at least part of Iditarod twice. Um, she's really experienced. She's truly a phenomenal dog. She's also one of the most shy dogs I've ever met in my life. Um, it's taken a couple, like, it's taken a, oh, basically a year to get her to come out of her shell with us. Um, and we're definitely starting to bond and to become buddies. Um, and part of the reason she ended up with us, the um, musher who was retiring from mushing, 
um, wanted to find a space for her where she would get the attention and um, investment as a side dog that she would need to, to flourish. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I've taken in a, a few shy dogs. Um, a dog who's not in this racing pool is Egret. She's another five-year-old. She's just, uh, she had a shoulder soreness that kind of took her out of the racing pool right now. But um, a great dog, but yet another really shy dog. And I, I really, really like working with shy dogs. Like, there's something very rewarding about um, earning their their trust and their, um, yeah, you know, like their their sense of belonging. It's so cool. One thing that happened with Egret was uh, we went on a free walk, like, outside of our home. We went down uh, to a trail, like, there's this pond that we go um, do free walks on and stuff. And, um, you know, I let all the dogs out of the truck. And Egret, this was the first time I think I was free running her, because I had been taking her on a leap because she was so shy and she was still kind of learning who we were and all this stuff. I had, at that point, I think we'd had her for about six months. And um, so I let her, I let her like off leash and she saw the trail because we were like on, you know, near one of the mushroom trails and she just booked it, running down the trail as fast as she possibly could go. And uh, I was like, no. So then I was like, you know, posting on Facebook, and I got all the dogs back in the truck, and I was, like, you know, telling everybody I knew, okay, she's going this way, and I was telling the people who, um, the kennel that she'd come from, she went running towards your kennel, and all this, and so I knew, like, to go look for her, I needed to go take the dogs back home, so I rushed back home with the truck, and I pulled into the driveway, and there was regret. She had run home, not to the place that she had originally come from, but to our home. And that was such a big deal for me. I was like, oh, my God, you know your way home and you know you, like, this is home. That was like, oh, that, I mean, it was a terrifying moment of, of feeling like, ah, she's gone. But uh, it was also really awesome that she knew what home was and that we were home. And um, that was a really, really cool moment. Um, so, yeah, there's, like I said, there's a couple shy ones in our group, Annie and Regret, Emmy, um, and I, I really love working with those dogs. Um, I, I don't know what it is exactly, but I think just being able to um, just provide that safe ground and like knowing that, um, knowing that you know, it's just patient and give them space that they can feel comfortable. Um, and I've actually been kind of drawn to shy dogs since. I started mustang with Martin. Um, there was this dog named Elias, who was one of the yearlings that I worked with. And, you know, I mean, dogs have very different personalities. You can see dogs in the same litter who have had the exact same experiences growing up, and, and you'll see a real big difference in their personality. So Elias was part of this group of mountain dogs um, who were like Logan and Casey and Elias and Hunter. Oh, such good dogs. Those guys were all part of my first junior I did around team. But Elias um, was really, really shy. Uh, he was kind of, kind of had like a blocky build, I would say, around his face. And he um, really pretty. I was like, oh, he's a black dog with um, some 
like, uh, you'll see this a lot on, on sled dogs who are mostly Alaskan huskies. If you look up what that is, it's very different looking than Balto and what you think Balto looked like. But, um, yeah, Elias had, was a black dog. He had, um, some spots over his eyebrows. So he had, like, eyebrow spots and, um, some other kind of white markings on his, like, like his chin and his stomach. Um, but the white marking area, Rogi, be polite. You know what? That person doesn't even want to be by you. I think he's stuck under the line. Rogi is being rude about it. Rogi, you can be polite. Look, Link, all you gotta do is do that. Um. You guys getting some snow? Kind of a warm day, isn't it? Bell. Hey, lie down. Good dog. Bell, Bell. You guys ready? All right. So, um, yeah, where Elias had, like, white markings kind of he almost looked a little bit blue which is really cool um but he was so shy he wouldn't come up to anybody and um yeah again like the same exact um environment and experience he just probably processed some something especially as a young puppy so there's kind of the stage of puppyhood where experiences can kind of become um, really formative for the dog. So if something scares them within the age range, and I forget, I think it's like between, I don't know, I want to say like 8 and 12 weeks or something, um, that can really sit with them and, again, kind of like form a lot of their resulting um, personality. Or at least that's what some people think. So anyway, Elias, he was pretty shy. And... Um, I just loved him from the beginning. I mean, I don't, again, I don't know what it is about side dogs, but, um, so I would actually just sit with him, um, in his, uh, spot, like at his house, and he would, he would not, you know, he would be like, I am not interested in being by you, human. But I would sit with him, um, not like asking him for anything, just being in the vicinity. And I was a 14-year-old kid. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but I just kind of, like, gave him space and, and but was also there. And, um, and also ignoring him. That's, like, a really kind of important thing for dogs is that, like, the, one of the best things you can do if a dog is, um, kind of worried about you is to ignore them. Um, because attention can mean, uh, and intention to interact, and they may not want whatever that interaction is right so i would just sit there kind of turned away from him and just being there and i let him come to me you know like really slowly and um really carefully and uh and then once he did come there i didn't like pet him or scratch his ears or anything i just let him like sniff me and you know see that or, like slowly start to trust that I was a safe presence. And um, over the year that I worked with that team, 
I, you know, built up that trust with Elias. And there's, um, there was actually a picture of me in the Anchorage paper on that first June I did around, um, petting Elias at one of the checkpoints. And I have this, this huge smile on, and, um, it's one of my favorite pictures. So cool. But yeah, that was the first, like, shy, shy dog I was with, and I really loved it. So, uh, yeah, I have a fondness for my side. So, yeah, that's the, that's the team. I mean, obviously I could talk about them for hours and hours and who knows if uh, anybody wants to hear that, but it's kind of nice for me to, to talk. So, so I thought I'd, yeah, maybe use this as a way to tell my story and, and kind of mark down my story as I go along the trail on my very first race and, um, Hopefully, you know, kind of have something to remember it all by and, um, and maybe share it in a way that is uh, as, as in the moment or as with the moment as you really can be. Um, yeah, I... <laughs> I'm sorry, I... I'm so lucky to be here, you know, to, like, be doing this thing. It, it could be hard to remember that because it takes a lot of work, and especially with my own dogs, and obviously you can tell how much I care about them and, um, you know, how rewarding it is to be them. But um, there's also, like, a lot of pressure and worry involved in a different way, and... Sometimes that kind of squeezes out, like, the, um, like, I kind of forget about being where I am and being joyful about that. So, it's good to be mustering on this really beautiful morning and, um, on the very last run before I get a ride. Ha! The next time I must on these trails, I will have completed the Iditarod. And you guys will have too. Yeah. Oh, you'll be such a tough dog. <laughs> I don't even know if this is still recording, so I guess we'll find that out soon. Oh, good girl. Come on, Belle Belle. Pee, pee, pee. Good girl. Oh, sorry. That's what I say when the dogs pee. I don't know why. I started doing that during the past Copper Basin 300. It's kind of silly. Yeah. What a weird thing to do, huh? It's a funny... It's a very bizarre sport that not very many people do. Um, yeah, I'm really lucky to do it. Uh, well, I think we're going to be doing some exciting uh, new trails on the Iditarod. New trails to us and camping and just going down the trail. Getting to be with my dog. 
That's pretty cool. Alright. I will see if this recorded anything. And um, next time I talk to you, I think I'll be on the uh, on the Iditarod Trail. So uh, our motto, or one of our mottos at the kennel is um, onward. So that's what we always close things out with. So until uh, next time, onward. I'm not going to stop recording so you guys are down in the drive first. Oh, oh. Yeah, I think this is going to be an explicit podcast because uh, sometimes when you fall down, you got to swear. Yeah, God! Woo-hoo-hoo! All right. Now's when we get to say it. Be on the trail, friends. On you.